You're tuned into KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, your grassroots listener-sponsored radio station for the Central Valley and mountain areas around here. Stay tuned because coming up right now, science, a candle in the dark. Welcome to Science, A Candle in the Dark, our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at California State University, Fresno. If you've looked at today's Google Doodle, you know that special graphic, often an interactive animation that Google puts on their homepage to mark special occasions. If you look, look at that Doodle up right now, you'll know that today, May 26th, is the birthday of Sally Ride, American icon of space exploration. Sally Ride became famous for being the first American woman to be sent up into orbit by NASA during the early years of the space shuttle program. Ride had chosen a career in science despite being told early on by a school teacher that she wasn't cut out to be a scientist. She earned much success in traditionally male-dominated fields, getting a PhD in physics from Stanford University and joining NASA as part of the first class of women astronauts. Talk about shattering glass ceilings. No wonder Sally Ride became an icon of science and remained a passionate advocate for science education for women and for equality in science. Despite such a public face, she also managed to keep her private life, well, private. And it was only after she died in 2012 that an obituary mentioned her longtime partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy, thereby outing her to most of us. Science remains a male-dominated enterprise for many, as evidenced by a well-known male astronomer claiming recently on NPR that astronomy, you know, despite look looking at the big questions, is mostly about boys with toys having fun. That sexist remark caused outrage among many of my colleagues and sparked a remarkable campaign on Twitter with the hashtag girls with toys. If you look at it now, it's become a steady stream showcasing the many different ways that women also have fun doing all sorts of science. Sally Ride likely would have been proud to be counted as one of the many girls with toys pushing the boundaries of science. And we'll be talking in a, in a few minutes about the areas of space exploration that she pioneered. But before that, just a couple of uh, other new discoveries that have caught my eye since our last program. A new paper in this week's issue of Science reports that glaciers on the southern Antarctic Peninsula have begun losing mass at a rapid and accelerating rate. The paper documented the dramatic thinning of land-based ice on the continent, which began in 2009, and they used satellite altimetry and gravity observations to reach the conclusion. The melting and weakening of the ice shelves has reducing, is reducing their buttressing effect, which allows the glaciers to flow more quickly to the sea, which means they are contributing even more to global sea level rise than expected based on global warming models. The authors are not quite sure if this is due to atmospheric warming or is being forced by something going on below in the ocean currents. Speaking of ocean temperatures, you know that the water can get quite cold quite rapidly as you get deeper underwater. 
especially in the Pacific, which makes our beach going here in California more interesting. You may also know that fish are cold-blooded creatures. Unless you've been paying attention, and until two weeks ago, when a new paper described the first fish known to be able to maintain its body temperature warmer than its surrounding environment. Some predatory fish species have been known to be able to warm some parts of their bodies to help them catch prey in colder, deeper waters. Swordfish, marlin, and sailfish, for example, can warm up their brain and eyes to sharpen their eyesight while hunting in deep waters. Likewise, tuna and some sharks, including the great white, can warm up their swimming, swimming muscles to gain extra speed. The round and somewhat ridiculous looking opa turns out to be a predatory fish that is capable of keeping its entire body warm in cold waters. It does this by using an intricate arrangement of blood vessels in its gills known as retina mirabilia, which acts as a countercurrent heat exchange mechanism that prevents heat generated within the body from being lost to the colder waters of the ocean via the gills. What an ingenious and remarkable adaptation. And what a fantastic example demonstrating why, in studying evolution, one can never say, now I've seen everything. A warm-blooded fish? Imagine that. It's my great pleasure now to welcome Professor Fred Ringwald from the Department of Physics at California State University, Fresno. Dr. Ringwald is an astronomer who got his PhD in physics from Dartmouth College and has been at Fresno State since 2000. He's now a full professor of physics uh, and is also the director of the campus observatory and of Fresno State Station in the Sierra Remote Observatories. We will hear more about that from him, I hope. Uh, his research interests include multi-wavelength observational astronomy of cataclysmic variable binary stars, nova shells, accretion disks and outflows, X-ray binaries and black holes, common envelope evolution, uh, stellar magnetism, and extrasolar planets. That last will be the subject of his Cafe Scientifique talk next week. He's also interested in space flight and astronomical instrumentation. Welcome to Science, a Candle in the Dark, Professor Ringwald. Oh, thanks, Pedro. I've, I've been particularly looking forward to this conversation with you because astronomy has been a passion of mine since high school days. You know, indeed, I was building telescopes and pointing them to the sky back in college in Bombay in the 1980s, <laughs> you know, when the Halley's Comet was around. We had revived an astronomy club there. And that was well before I one day pointed my binoculars to, to birds in the daytime and that became my career track. So astronomy has sort of been a, uh, an amateur passion ever since. I'm really excited to have you here today. Well, it's funny because um, my first telescope was in fact my mother's bird watching binoculars. There you go. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a good synergy there. So uh, as we get started, let me remind you of something I tell all our guests. Uh, something physicist uh, Leo Zillard once said, you know, that you should assume infinite ignorance and unlimited intelligence on the part of our audience when you explain uh, your answers. Just so like class. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with the topic of uh, your Cafe Scientifique talk next week. What do we know about planets around other stars, the so-called exoplanets or extrasolar planets? We know of over a thousand of them, and actually it's probably now over 2,000 and probably will soon be 3,000. Wow. How do we know about their existence, let alone study them from here? Some of them we can see directly. Most of them it's indirect. It's indirect detection. 
basically um, detecting how much their gravity pulls their parent star around. Mm -hmm. We can see that. Many, many, many of them from Kepler, uh, NASA's Kepler Observatory that by geometry just happen, the planet happens to pass between its parent star and us, and it makes the star become a little fainter, okay. and they can measure that. That's called transiting. Um, so it's like a, just like a little eclipse. Far like away. a little eclipse. Yeah. Okay. And um, it started out. It started out uh, really in uh, 1991 with radio telescopes uh, picking up the wobble from the parent star that the planet was pulling around from its gravity. Mm. The funny thing is the stars were burnt out cinders, what used to be stars, namely pulsars, okay. uh, that had been made in a huge explosion, a supernova. It's the last place in the universe anybody would have expected to find a uh, planet. Because you would expect them to have been destroyed or maybe not survive? It's a nice physics demonstration. Yeah. Whirl a weight on a string around and cut it with a pair of scissors. Uh -huh. And, of course, it'll go flying. Yeah. So these pulsar planets probably are not at all like uh, anything we know about. They're probably made after the explosion from material that fell back. But planets around stars like the sun started turning up again from indirect methods in 1995 okay. and now the methods are getting more and more direct the transit method um has been uh turning up thousands of them recently and the european space agency has launched a spacecraft called gaia which will detect Again, in a different way, how the planet's gravity pulls its star, its parent star around as the star moves through space. That's expected to get to get tens of thousands of them within mm. the next decade. Wow! Yeah. So these are observations based using satellites in orbit. You can't really do this from the surface. In the fact, earth, can you? you can, mm. and we have done it. My wow. students and I have done this at our humble little campus observatory on campus in the middle of town at Fresno State. You've detected a planet, extrasolar planet? Well, it was or one... Or you able to observe it? Yeah, uh, yeah. It was one that was already known. Okay. Uh, taken with the spirit of, let's see if we can do this. Wow. And yes, we can. We can. And I'm pretty sure that if we were more careful about how we did the observations, uh, we could do it three times better. Wow, that sort of blows my mind a bit because we... From the city, it's hard enough to even see the, you know, many stars. Yes. To know that if you have the, the and it's not a particularly big telescope that you have. Well, digital instruments yeah. make it easy to subtract out the sky astonishingly accurately. Okay. And when it's a Jupiter-mass planet, it's an orbit around a sun-like star. Yeah. However, it's not just a Jupiter, it's a hot Jupiter. It's a Jupiter-mass planet closer to its parent star than Mercury is to the Sun. Oh, okay. So it's a hot Jupiter. It goes around its parent star only once every three and a half days. Mercury takes 88 days to go around the Sun. So mm -hmm. this is really close to its parent star. And moving really fast. Yes, moving really fast. And since it um, 
since it is so big, the size of Jupiter, it makes its uh, parent star uh, get fainter by 1.4 percent, and we could easily do, we could easily do that. Um, we, oh, the measurements that we did basically uh, can measure down to um, 0.3 percent, and I'm pretty sure we could get down to 0.1. Wow! So, a really nice detection, and um, um something that for our students to do and i'm running this class again this fall observational astronomy so i nice. hope to get students interested in this again yeah that's fantastic i hope somebody listening to us right now will, will get interested to take that class yeah and and as you're describing that i was just thinking about it wasn't you know it was just a few centuries ago that galileo first pointed the telescope towards jupiter and discovered that there are moons around Jupiter and here we're talking about planets around other stars and this is also only in the last two decades yes and I've been beaten to the punch of discovering the first moon oh. around an exoplanet oh wow planet that's around happened another too? star that's happened now and I was I was hoping to I was hoping to be the first one but somebody has beaten me to it wow. the first exo moon uh, around yeah. yeah around an exoplanet basically it has a disk of dust around it, similar to the asteroid belt, hmm. and the interior has been hollowed out uh, around a planet, not okay. around a star, around a planet. Oh, wow. okay. So a planet with a ring that has been hollowed out, presumably by a moon. Ah, so okay. indirect detection of a moon around a planet of another star. I was hoping to do it with radio. I was hoping mm -hmm. to detect radio emissions similar to what uh, one of Jupiter's big moons, Io, is doing, which Galileo discovered. Yeah. Galileo, of course, would have coveted a modern pair of binoculars. Of oh, and he would have loved a 19th century stopwatch, too, for yeah. his experiments on motion. Yeah, yeah. He used his pulse to keep time, which worked about as well as you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, of course, instrumentation has come a long way since then, and you're talking about using radio and and uh, and also telescopes and instruments in orbit yeah or oh yeah and uh, hubble space telescope a friend of mine and i are uh, going to uh try and get another uh, hubble space telescope project uh, next year to study uh, magnetism flares on the stars and actually that is in connection with planets because a planet that's magnetic hmm. like earth is going to cause flares uh, might have an effect on uh, mm. a magnetic star, uh, like the sun, yeah, <laughs> which has flares which are magnetic. And the interaction, especially with these hot Jupiters, if you have a yeah. uh, Jupiter is well known to have a powerful magnetic field, and we now know of uh, Jupiter-mass planets closer to their parent stars than Mercury is to the sun. You put a magnetized planet next to a magnetic star, um... Something tells me something's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> you would expect <laughs> so. And you, you'd, you'd be able to use some instruments to detect that. You can't really see this, right? Even the telescopes we have in orbit are not able to visualize. Well, orbit. no. That would be radio. Yeah. But one of the great things about radio astronomy is many of these radio signals made by natural things... Um, uh, you can run through a pair of earphones. Mm -hmm. And the best project I ever got 
from one of the students in my introductory class was a blind woman who did her project on astronomy for the blind. Wow. She got a bunch of radio astronomy um, 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 uh, observations and ran them through earphones, and it was so cool I could barely stand it. <laughs> you could hear Jupiter's That's magnetic fantastic. field rumbling, <laughs> and Saturn's ringing like a bell, and pulsars, bleep, 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 bleep. Oh, it was just so. It was just that's so good. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a different dimension of sensory exploration of the of the planets there. Oh yeah. So uh, beyond just detecting wh where they are and what they are, how do you? You're also beginning to be able to study the composition and structure of these planets now, right? I was reading about a recent study which found volcanic activity on a planet. Yes. Yes. And uh, atmospheres, a, a mm -hmm. very very big. Um, very, very big field is atmospheres. Transiting planets do that. When the planet moves in front of or behind its parent star, mm -hmm. if you take these signals, if you take these measurements very, very carefully and subtract out the contribution from the parent star and uh, only the planet, you can basically study the planet's atmosphere in quite a bit okay. of detail. Wow. Which leads me to the, the question which is which has excited a lot of scientists and science fiction as well is this question of is there life on other planets and and how do we go about detecting it? We think a good way to define life on other planets would be to find a planet with an atmosphere that is rich in out of chemical equilibrium gases, such mm. as oxygen, ozone uh, methane, like Earth's atmosphere, yeah. for example. Earth's atmosphere has so much oxygen in it. Um, it's so out of equilibrium, chemically. Uh, it should react out instantly. It doesn't because it's replenished by the action of life every day. Uh, mostly uh, diatoms and plankton in uh, Earth's oceans. Hmm. And um, therefore... Um, search for uh, these gases or other wildly out of equilibrium gases in other planets' atmospheres. Um, almost always discussions of life in the universe quickly turn into uh, discussions of life as we know it in yeah, the universe. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to say much that makes sense about life as we don't know it. Of course. Because we don't know There's it. No speculation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... But, um, uh, but so it's mainly sort of looking for Earth-like planets or signatures of chemistry that's maybe similar to Earth's well, atmosphere. Um, Madhu, we now know that Earth-sized planets, mm -hmm. one in five sun-like stars, has an Earth-sized planet in its habitable zone. Okay. At least 20%, 20% or higher of sun-like stars have Earth-sized planets in their habitable zones. The habitable zone being where liquid water can exist, the temperatures between yeah, yeah. 0 and 100 Celsius. Yeah. So that's quite a huge number of potential planets for Earth-like life forms. Uh, well, um, billions in our yeah. galaxy alone. Yeah. So uh, at least... Um, so, yeah, one in, one in five, that's uh, good grief. That's... that's uh, <laughs> That's over 100 billion in our uh -huh. galaxy alone. Uh -huh. yeah. So, uh, well, I guess maybe maybe you could 
beat somebody to the punch and finding something like that. <laughs> no, I don't think I have the right equipment. Although, um, then again, though, a great deal of science, of course, is just having the brains to recognize the lucky yep. break when you get it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I could get a lucky break, and uh, I just hope that I uh, recognize it when it happens. Uh, but actually, uh, no, NASA's going full s speed ahead with that. Yeah. The Kepler Observatory is uh, continuing its mission. NASA plans to launch another space telescope called TESS, the uh, Transient Earth, um, what is it, Space... Um, um, uh, oh, what was it? But it, it's basically supposed to discover uh, exoplanets, uh, uh, transiting mm. exoplanets around bright nearby stars. Okay. And uh, follow-up observations to be done by James Webb Space Telescope to be launched um, 2018 of their atmospheres. Hmm. And then eventually a, um, a, um, the next big telescope after James Webb Space Telescope has only been proposed as a concept so far, so it doesn't even have a name. It's being called the High Definition Space Telescope, HDST. Some people are also calling it ATLAS, the Ad Advanced Technology Large Area Space Telescope, whatever. Okay. Plan for some time in the next decade. But uh, the key project is to find Earth-like planets, to basically definitely find these, um, these um, detect these gases okay. um, from, er from, from Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone of nearby stars. Wow. But you never know when you're going to get lucky and beat yeah. them to the punch. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting time. Yeah. So you said we, we have about 3,000 planets that are known now to be around other stars. Okay. Or close to that. The Kepler Observatory has observed over 3,000 3, events. Okay. okay. It is estimated that 90 to, uh, to 80 to 90 percent of them are real transits. Okay. But with this many, it's occupying a whole large science team to check to each event through, huh? carefully. Okay. Probably in the next year or two, though, they'll they'll have gone through it and they'll so, have their. So how many confirmed planets? Well, certainly over a thousand. Over a thousand. Certainly over a thousand. Then I may be underestimating. And actually, um, it's hard to keep up to date. Yeah. yeah. Things are coming Imagine. in so fast. It's hard to keep up to date. Do you have a favorite among these? thousand or so exoplanets? Yes, that would be Earth. Of course. Of course. But that's not an exoplanet, right? No, that isn't an <laughs> exoplanet. All yeah. right. That isn't an exoplanet. Do I have a favorite? There are a number of good ones. A friend of mine at, fr at San Diego State, Bill Welsh, with whom I shared an office in England when we were postdocs, recently discovered one that orbits a binary star system. In other oh. words, two stars. Two stars cl uh, close to each other, mm -hmm. orbiting each other, and a planet orbiting the other two. And Scientific American asked him to write an article, and he did. And in the very first uh, paragraph, tattooing the home yes, of Luke Skywalker is of mentioned. Course up, yes. Of course. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. The, the double sunset. <laughs> uh -huh. That's yeah. happened. One yeah. of those has been found. Uh, a planet around a, a, a double star system. That's a good one. There have been uh, hot Jupiters. Oh, the, the variety goes on and on. Um, it's turning out that the solar system is not a typical planetary system. Yeah, you, you said that in, in describing your 
talk for next week. I was going to ask you about that. Why is it not typical? Well, it isn't extremely rare either. Hmm. Uh, about 3% or 1 out of 30. Okay. Star is similar to the sun, has a system of planets resembling the solar system with hmm. small rocky planets like Earth close in and large gaseous planets like Jupiter farther out. Uh, most, actually, are not like that at all. Hmm. Um, roughly 1% has a hot Jupiter, totally unlike anything we were expecting. In other words, a uh, planet bigger than Jupiter, closer to closer its parent to the star. Sun, yeah. Than, than Mercury is to the Sun, about 30 to 40% of them have intermediate mass planets. Hmm. Um, between the mass of Earth and Uranus, there are none. In the solar system, there are no planets with masses between 1 and 15 Earth masses. Okay. It turns out that 30 40 to 40% of other planetary systems do have those. Oh. And there appears to be an abrupt transition up to two Earth masses, they're rocky, so super-Earths, mm -hmm. and above two Earth masses, they're so two to 15 Earth masses, yeah, they're, they're gaseous, gaseous, like uh, warm or hot Neptunes. Hmm. Um, so things are turning out very different from what uh, we thought. It used to be we thought that all stars like the Sun had to have systems of planets that were exact copies of the solar system. That's not true at all. Well, yeah, I guess I would guess that's a good model to start with, perhaps, but I wouldn't necessarily expect that to be the template, so to speak, right? Yeah, well, it's kind of like being... We've all had that situation of being a kid... And all of a sudden, you see your parents acting very strangely. You start yeah. to wonder if you're adopted. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, it turns out the solar system is yeah. not a typical system yeah. of planets. Huh. Huh. Well, uh, we are getting to the close of our time here. But before we close out, uh, I want to mention that uh, we don't have a, a commentary uh, for this month's program, uh, but uh, given our interest in exploring the interaction between science and public policy and how science helps us not just understand but also manage our world, I'd like to ask you a, a more political question, if you don't mind. No, no. Right? Uh, recently, uh, Republican ideologues led by uh, the likes of Senator Ted Cruz, uh, among others, proposed to cut funding for NASA's Earth Sciences Division. They've said various things about how you know it's arrogant of, uh, I think Jeb Bush said that it's arrogant of scientists to claim that climate change is uh, you know, due to human activity. So, and they talk about cutting Earth science funding for NASA, even while proclaiming that they have a love for space exploration and they want to explore Mars and other planets. Uh, so what do you, how do you feel as an astronomer who's, who is doing this deep space exploration about this idea that let's look outward, but let's not point those instruments to the Earth, because we might find things like the Antarctic ice shelf melting, which might cause some political discomfort. What's your response to this kind of thing? It is so childish. Uh, is it arrogant to look at a thermometer? For crying out loud. Um, if you refuse to deal with reality around you, rest most assured, reality is not going to refuse to deal with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen to your scientists. Yeah. Uh, this isn't a big conspiracy. Um, 
it's very difficult to get science to do anything in an organized fashion. It's like herding cats. It, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was thinking. So. Um, no, listen to your scientists. Uh, refusing to look away from evidence, rather, looking away from evidence on purpose is never a good policy, is never profitable, at least not on the long run. But I guess there's a short-term profit that some people are looking at, which is, seems to be driving these kinds of political calculations anyway. Yeah, well, um, it disturbs me. Yeah. So, you know, we are, we are in, the, in, in another presidential election cycle, and we're going to hear a lot of inanities about science coming from the mouths of candidates, you know, trying to appeal to the, the, the lowest common denominator of voters, I imagine. But one of the things that uh, I hope might happen this time is that there's been talk of a science debate among the candidates. I don't know if, if that will ever happen, but it would be fan wouldn't that be fantastic to have a science debate among the candidates? That would be fantastic, but uh, how would it play to a general audience? I don't know. Um, I sure wish the general public knew a lot more about science. I agree with you on that, and, and we'll leave it at that for now. Thank you, Dr. Ringwald. And finally, a quick reminder to our audience that the Central Valley Cafe Scientific meets on the first Monday of each month of the school year at 7 p.m. in Peeves Pub on the Fulton Mall in downtown Fresno. For more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. And join, join us for a pint of the fine brews on tap at Peeves Pub with a hearty helping of science to nourish your mind. The next, next event is on June 1st. We'll feature a presentation by our guest, Dr. F uh, Fred Ringwald. Uh, if, so if you're intrigued by our conversation today, join us next Monday and you can get to ask him questions in person. The cafe will be on a summer hiatus during July and August, so we will not have a guest speaker from that program. Instead, we are working on special summer episodes for the next two months, featuring multiple guests with whom we will explore some topics in depth. I can't tell you more right now because I'm still working on it, but I think it will be exciting, so watch out for our summer specials. Our show is engineered by Vic Bedoyan and our theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Do tune in next month on May 26th for another episode of Science, A Candle in the Dark. Until then, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb. Right.